right. Oh, of course, they're going to battle me. <laughs> okay. And we should be live. But there's All no right. guarantees, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. We require external observers to confirm our existence. So, That's right, or deny it, or That's, or yeah. deny to yeah, exactly. So once they can uh, they can deny our existence, <laughs> and that will throw the whole theory of we exist into doubt. <laughs> there we go. I see a couple of people saying that we exist. All right, Let's how's see. it going? Great. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been anxious to talk to you for about. 15 years now so <laughs> that's only amazing took a decade and a half <laughs> i had i had no idea now we uh covered uh every well, the minutiae of your work but i had no idea that you uh that you were watching it it happen unfold in real time but i'm sure uh, we'll get to we'll get oh, to all yeah. of that <laughs> i today i'm interviewing dr brian keating author of losing the nobel prize and uh so there's your context everybody uh so Brian, who are you? What do you do? Uh, well, I ask myself that frequently, I but don't. I am a, I am an astrophysicist. So I am a director of a large telescope project. I am the uh, professor of physics, and I am uh, also sort of a lifelong astronomy amateur astronomer nerd. And I've lately become uh, bitten by the writing bug by. Uh, authorship of this book, my first book, and possibly my only book. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, writing a second book is is the big question, right? After you write the first one, it's like whether or not you ever want to do the second one, right? All these snobs say, well, you know, you wrote a book, so you're you're a writer, but are you an author? And yeah. I, say, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Does this answer your question? Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, stop asking. Yeah. Come on. Anyone who's <laughs> written a book knows that that writing a second book is not to be taken lightly. No, and and uh, people are, you know, and I, I do feel very lucky that people are approaching me to write another book, which I don't think would happen if they really hated my book or yeah. uh, it wasn't uh, popularly received. And, you know, as a uh, recovering academician and still involved in academia as you are, you know, you might get 10 papers, uh, 10 citations to a given academic research paper. But, you know, a book like this, you know, sold 12,000 copies, you know, around the world. And and that means, you know, people on every continent that at this very moment, there is a man in Antarctica uh, who is has a copy of my book. Yeah, that one was free. So I didn't get any. any right. Yeah. But the fact that, that your book made it to Antarctica is uh, is pretty amazing. It all, is. All right. So, I mean, you've got a fascinating story and I want to get into it and I want to uh, to sort of talk about the future as well. Uh, so. You know, I, I'm, and you know, we have a very technical audience. They're going to understand a lot of this stuff. So, so let's sort of go back a bit and just talk a bit about the, you know, your work as an experimenter and an instrument designer, and leading up to your objective for for searching for primordial gravitational waves. Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a very uh, you know astonishingly interconnected story. As it turns out, I, I'd always been interested in astronomy since I was a kid, and uh, soon after that, I became even interested in winning a Nobel Prize for reasons I describe in the book that trace themselves to really wanting to get approval, wanting to get uh, uh, sort of recognition, and all sorts of reasons that people strive for any sort of accolade in in science and outside of science. You know, how many Oscars and, you know, Academy Award type uh, things are there in the world? But for scientists, winning the Nobel Prize is really the paramount ultimate achievement 
beyond which you really can't aspire to. And for those of us in academia, yourself, your listeners included, watchers included, uh, once you are successful as a scientist, yeah, you're used to, and maybe you welcome getting graded, getting uh, a, a prize, appraised, and and so forth. But as you know, once you go to graduate school, I mean, I haven't gotten a grade in anything, luckily, you know, in, in you know, two decades. And so, how do you fulfill that grade grubbing tendency that many of us have? Well, a lot of us, it's winning accolades or getting, you know, winning the the um, coliseum-like gladiatorial battle that it takes to get a, a faculty position. And then once you get that faculty position, moving up to the tenure track and getting getting promoted. So uh, I didn't think it was a realistic possibility that I'd ever win the Nobel Prize, but that was sort of my goal, to do something worthy of a Nobel Prize that was concomitantly something that had never been done before in the history of the universe, and that was to reveal the properties of the Big Bang itself. And what we're fascinated in cosmology today is the question, uh, which is more or less an eternal question, is whether or not the universe itself is eternal. Is it cyclical? I mean, most scientists and non-scientists are now aware of the Big Bang and, and believe in the Big Bang, whatever that means. Uh, but uh, in reality, there's no such thing as really the Big Bang theory currently in cosmology. And the controversy surrounding that makes up a good chunk of what I want to describe and the excitement uh, of getting paid to do experimentation to determine what happened at the very earliest moments. Right. I mean, the Big Bang really covers the fact that that the universe is expanding all around us and that if you that everything is everything is getting less dense over time. And if you run the clock backwards to the beginning, it says that things must have been more dense in the past. But but it but what happened before that is is the job of some other theory. You know, exactly and right. I don't so think it's, it's no more, uh, you know, an or origin of yeah, species as uh, than existed before the origin of species. In other words, uh, physicists, scientists in general are, are universally obsessed with differential equations, and as you know. Every dis differential equation requires what's called boundary conditions. You know, how does your physical system that you're modeling, be it, you know, predator-prey or be it thermodynamical systems, uh, how does it interact with the, with the environment that contains it? And the other factor that must enter into all calculations in physics are the initial conditions that describe what happened in the beginning. Well, as I say in the book, you know, the Big Bang, if it is the true origin of time itself, is a unique moment not ever witnessed, you know, uh, since and certainly, you know, nothing like any moment because that we've experienced because there was no priority. There's nothing that came before it. Right. There, you know, the universe started without being in the middle of the story. It is the story. Uh, and yet. As I say, most cosmologists right now they might take for granted that the Big Bang is expanding hot acceleration from the from the early universe, uh, and the universe been cooling, expanding, accelerating its expansion even over the past uh, you know fifteen you know thirteen billion years. But we lack a real in depth understanding of the exact moments and the conditions that took place, if you will, at, at the origin of the universe itself. And it's a really tough time to probe because you've got the the cosmic microwave background that obscures our view beyond the first 340,000 years after the Big Bang. So it's a very difficult time. You can't use the regular technique, light, and so you have to use some other technique, in this case, potentially gravity. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I'm sitting here in UCSD in my office, and uh, the office behind me there is occupied by one of our executive vice chancellors here. You know, she's really the woman in command of the entire university. Uh, don't tell the chancellor that, but but it's basically true. Uh, and okay. if Nobody's I watch this, it's not recorded. 
Yeah, and if, I, <laughs> and if I wanted to, I couldn't even, you know, spy on her through this wall. It's pretty opaque, isn't it? But if I could put my ear against the wall using a different form of technology, using a different form of radiation, if you will, sound radiation, sound, I could determine what she's talking about and how she's, you know, planning to to uh, cut my 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 pay and so forth. But but in reality, the uh, the eyes are not the only form of sensory organs that we can use, and and essentially we don't use telescopes, you know, look through them the way Galileo used to do and so forth. But we are able to use other forms of radiation and what was so cute to me when i came up with the idea to test whether or not we could experimentally probe the first moments of uh, of the quantum gravitational epoch of the inflationary universe that spawned the rest of the story that we're now a part of the big bang itself uh, i was tickled by the fact that we're actually using the cosmic microwave background, the CMB, the famous three Kelvin backgrounds discovered by you know accident by Penzias and Wilson uh, 54 years ago, uh, that we would use that as our detector. So we would use photons as a sort of film. And on this film would be exposed waves of gravity from an earlier epoch. So the CMB, the three Kelvin background, was produced 400,000 years after the Big Bang. And that's the end of the line If it were, when it comes to photons and electromagnetic radiation. As you said, you can no more see past that, see through it, than you can look through a mirror with, the, your, with your eyes. Right. But you can use waves of gravity to see earlier and further back in time. And that's exactly what we thought we did with the BICEP2 experiment. Right. And the, you know, the goal to look back with that that inflationary period, of course, is that there are a bunch of problems with the Big Bang or there are a bunch of of issues that the Big Bang, questions the Big Bang brings up about how parts of the universe seem to be the same, even though they, you know, they should be, they're on opposite sides of the sky and they shouldn't be connected in any way and and that there, there's a bunch of other issues. And so, of course, this idea of inflation to describe this really rapid expansion early on to get to get around that, and yet inflation has been a really tricky thing to try and find any observational evidence of, especially because, as I, as I mentioned, you know, the, the cosmic microwave background is this, is obscuring our, our view to this. And so to find clues is, is tricky work. So I, I love that idea that you're using the CMB as a film to expose the, th this earlier epoch onto. Uh, so you went about designing an experiment to be able to actually do this. Yeah. Yeah. The experiment had to be of a unique characteristic in some ways and highly advanced in, in a certain sense. But it's also, you know, the simplest of all possible telescopes is that it's a refracting telescope. So, you know, the telescope behind you is presumably a refracting telescope. And even the gigantic, you know, Keck telescopes and the Hubble telescope, at some level, they have refractive optics in them, namely lenses and, and corrector plates and things like that. And I thought, well, at a basic at a basic standpoint, all telescopes have these refractive elements. What if they only had refractive elements? What if you got rid of these mirrors, which can, in some ways, introduce what are called artifacts, systematic effects that obscure and bias the results that you're looking for? These are instrumental effects. So you could build the cleanest, most simple telescope, and lo and behold, it turned out to be a refracting telescope with two lenses, exactly like the one that Galileo used in 1609 to really overthrow okay. our view. I think I have our view one behind me. Yeah. That's that's right. That's you in the background, right? Yeah. Looking up at Pluto. <laughs> uh, and for us, uh, you know, the simplicity is beauty and simplicity is elegance. And that leads to a cleaner, more vibrant experiment. And for seeking signals such as we did, we were looking for signals that are about one part in a billion 
of the background of even the frigid location where we put this telescope. We would have liked to put it in space to get rid of all atmospheric contamination, uh, but we didn't have the uh, cash to do that, and NASA wasn't willing to do that at the time. Uh, they're only now really investigating the possibility of building a space telescope to do the kind of science that we started doing back in 2001 with BICEP, which is a refracting telescope we put at the bottom of the planet, at the South Pole Antarctica. But I, I love this idea of, of building an instrument specifically to answer a question that you that may be at the very limits of what is possible to discover, but it's done on a bit of on a relative shoestring than the billions it might cost for a, a space-based version. Well, I, yeah. I'm sure you've got a more accurate budget. Um, yeah. And even knowing if you're in the right ballpark, if you can sense a whiff that there's something there, then you can come back and follow up with more detailed observations. And I think it's a it's a it's a real winning strategy. I see I see this same approach happen again and again where people are, you know, they're building just enough telescope and no more to yes. to to probe this situation and then if you get a positive result then you can follow up with something that's more uh that's more specific and beefier and and you've learned all your lessons i love i mean even like what's what's been happening with with ligo right like the first detector the first time they built this thing they weren't even sure they would ever be able to detect anything. A lot of people thought it was crazy, right? And they didn't detect anything for the for the longest time, and then they came back around with an, with an update to it. They did make a couple of detections, and now we are just a week into its new run, where it's like forty percent more effective than it was. So I think, yeah. you know, I I admire that experimenter's mindset about like you know, I, I mean, in, in business you sort of have this concept of the. Um, minimum yeah. viable product, right? Yes, exactly. And it's, yeah. and it's that, what's the minimum viable instrument? To... Yeah, I've been um, speaking. Somehow I get connected to these really interesting entrepreneurs that do podcasting too, like Dave Asprey, who runs this Bulletproof uh, radio podcast. And we were talking just a couple weeks ago about how you know all scientific experiments of this caliber are basically startups. I mean, I have a payroll. I have employees, I have travel, I have receivables, I don't make money on any sale. In fact, I lose a lot of money in that sense. Uh, but my currency is citations, is influence, is, is how we, and this hasn't changed in hundreds of years. Uh, going back to Galileo in my research for the book, I really realized that Galileo was a, uh, he was an entrepreneur and he wanted to maintain a monopoly that he had on his telescope, which which wasn't you know his invention, but his improvements were so substantive that you could really call it almost a unique device that he had created because it had so much more magnification power but and and freedom from artifacts, these systematic effects. He did all sorts of amazing things in retrospect uh, that allowed him to see things like the phases of Venus, the moons of Jupiter, uh, and of course craters and mountains on the moon. And he was smart. He was shrewd. And he had no small amount of motivation because he had a bunch of illegitimate children and mistresses, you know, to support yeah. uh, over there in uh, Florence because he had, uh, you know, had dallied a lot in his earlier youth. And if he had given up everybody, had told everybody the secret to how his telescopes work so effectively, he would have lost his monopoly. But what he realized is he could publish a paper, you know, self-publish a book called The Starry Messenger, Sidereus Nuncius, and that book would be the instruction manual for a product that he would never release <laughs> to the public, even to Kepler. He never really shared the product with Kepler for fear of being scooped. And 
that type of competitive nature that most people associate with business is actually rife throughout all of science. And it is a very interesting uh, thing to consider how similar science is to entrepreneurship. And I always joke, you know, it shouldn't surprise people because the Big Bang was the very first startup there ever was, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, of course, you built this instrument, you gathered up your data. Um, and I think a lot of people remember we talked about about it a lot yeah um about uh about the announcement that you guys made mm -hmm. uh so can you sort of talk a bit about how that how that went down yeah it was exactly four years ago this march wow. uh, it was saint, okay saint patrick's day yeah time really flies when you're studying billions of year old things <clears throat> and we made an announcement at harvard university that the successor to the project i invented called bicep imaginatively titled bicep 2 <clears throat> had made a discovery of these waves of gravity percolating and permeating the early universe space-time fabric and that was causing this particular type of polarization pattern which uh, we refer to as b modes for a very technical reason but really these correspond to if you were to make a map with your polarized sunglasses and twist the polarized sunglasses around in every point in the sky you would see a swirling pattern of polarization vectors where the light was preferentially dominating in this swirling configuration that was where these waves of gravity and the primordial moments of creation perhaps were the strongest and that was as close to direct evidence of, say, the quantum gravitational epoch to the inflationary epoch. You were detecting the shrapnel of inflation. And this was the goal that, we, that I had when I started the project that was the predecessor, Bicep One. And by the time we had uh, made the announcement, it was three years after taking data with the second generation instrument called Bicep Two. And so we had two uh, sets of experiments that had basically seen very similar evidence, although one was much more sensitive than the other one. And we decided we would go ahead with this because this is literally the greatest quarry in cosmology, is yeah. understanding how the universe began. Yeah, I mean, uh, and, you know, your book is called Losing the Nobel Prize. Yeah, spoiler and, alert. And, and I think right. that is absolutely, uh, you know, I, I mean – Someone would have gotten a Nobel Prize, um, yeah. you know. And, that day, and... I mean, uh, about seven people, including, you know, former Nobel Prize winners, were speculating on which one of us would win the Nobel Prize. Yeah. So yeah. People, people say, well, I don't see how you can lose the Nobel Prize if you didn't win it. I'm like, well, that yeah, I guess you can't lose an Oscar, right? Yeah. You can't. You, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, but but so so let's talk about how it all sort of went went a little wrong and. Um, yeah. You know that moment where the you know the Planck team were gathering up their data and they were mapping out all of the dust, dust. Yes. <laughs> um, mapping out the dust in the across the the skies and that and how the dust was the cause of the of the uh, of yeah. The so we we you know it's interesting because um, you know recently you know people have been talking about uh, other sorts of big announcements that are coming up really like two days away from <laughs> two this days event, away right? yeah yeah, yeah. Right, yeah everyone's the chat really wants us to get into that which I hope we'll have some time to yeah to talk maybe about we'll have some chance to talk about that so uh, yeah part of the discovery relies on the South Pole as well so um, the experiment was known to have you know basically two different types of potential artifacts that could contaminate the results. One was from the inevitable randomness arrival of heat 
uh, from other sources other than the cosmic microwave background that we're using as this film to expose waves of gravity onto. And that could produce an uh, excess amount of noise that would obscure a true signal if it existed, and we would be blind to that signal. There's another type of signal which is uh, possibly present from the instrument itself, uh, from the South Pole, even though it's very cold, it's uh, still you know, hundreds of Kelvin warmer than the signals that we're looking for. And remember, these are about nano Kelvin, you know, parts per billion of the already feeble microwave background three Kelvin signal itself. And then there are, of course, other signals that are true astrophysical signals, honest-to-goodness signals produced not by, you know, gremlins or ET or by radio transmitting towers, uh, but actually produced by cosmic phenomena. And in the case of the pursuit of the cosmic microwave background radiation, this had actually never been a problem before. Our experiments had, had been measuring um, signals since the 1960s. And in fact, in the early part of the 1960s, when Penzias and Wilson were trying to attempt to, to uh, communicate with radio satellites in space for the first time, they didn't, of course, want to detect the CMB. They didn't know about it. Yeah. They were actually first trying to calibrate their system by looking at the galaxy and trying to see galactic signals, and they couldn't see them. And that made people maybe lulled us into a false sense of security. And for the next 40, you know, five years almost, people, uh, 50 years, people were basically, you know, confident that we could model the expected contamination of the Milky Way galaxy and remove it with enough fidelity to leave behind just the pristine cosmic signals. And this was the case for experiments like WMAP and Planck. I mean, they went to great efforts to remove it, but it was a, it was a tractable problem. However, with the cosmic microwave background's B-mode polarization, the twisting, curling fingerprints of the inflationary epoch, uh, the signals that we, uh, that we imputed to be coming potentially from dust, which is the number one contaminant uh, that we were worried about, we modeled them as being much smaller than we should be concerned about. And so, uh, but we weren't really all that settled about it, even up until nearly publication date. And so what we did is we reached out to we knew that, you know, this billion euro satellite called Planck was trying to make this measurement just as sure as we were trying to make this measurement, because, amongst other things, they would uh, win a Nobel Prize. Presumably. Yeah. And so we didn't want to be uh, gun shy about this. You know, they invest a billion euros. They want to get something out of it, like, just like LIGO, et cetera. I mean, part of the motivation is, is you have to pay your bills and that funding agencies use the Nobel Prize a proxy for impact. And anyway, so we had um, pursued, and some of the members of our team, my friends on the team, were members of the Planck collaboration. And so I felt, you know, well, maybe they can just peek at the data, you know. I'd probably take a look at the data, you know, if yeah. I were them. But User it, turned out that they, yeah. it turned out that they didn't. And in that sense, you know, I salute their integrity because I, I don't know if I could have resisted the temptation to know that we had a signal in the bag. And so we made formal requests, they, and the Planck team denied our request. Yeah. So it was natural to think, well, they had the sensitivity. They said they had the sensitivity to more than scoop us. And they had the data, not just from the patch, the small patch we could see from the South Pole. They had it from the entire sky at nine frequencies. And we only had one frequency. And you need multiple colors or frequencies to resolve and tease out the different cosmic contaminants. And so we went to publication with a model that, um, that was based in part upon a slide that, yeah. we, had, uh, that we had digitized from an informal, more or less informal talk that was on the Planck website, still there, I cite it in my book. Uh, and this this paper, this slide that was presented in, in uh, Europe gave us the you know last bit of confidence that we needed to go forward with the self-published, you know, not peer-reviewed result and press conference that became, you know, seen on CNN and the New York Times and uh, three million people on YouTube. And this uh, this 
I realized in retrospect is just yet another example of of confirmation bias, which which is you know, maybe something important that that most listeners might not really be you know might be surprised to learn about in science. Yeah, I mean the question is just to figure out what your biases are. We all have them. The trick is to realize or to start to question your own. Uh, assumptions right. to sort out which is your confirmation biases. So I just want to talk about about the book a little bit. I really enjoyed I really enjoyed the book. Um, Thanks. I loved it because I knew how this story ended. <laughs> um, as you brought up dust, I saw how dust had been this had been this influence had been this this confounding effort. Uh, this confounding factor through so much scientific discovery. It had been the thing that had raised its head time and time again. Mm -hmm. And that it was clearly your kryptonite and you (laughs) probably, and and to the point that you knew going into this, into this final decision to actually uh, announce uh, your discovery, you got, I'm sure this was your greatest fear. Oh yes. It would end up being the dust. You knew it could be dust, but you knew that, Planck could announce before you and and scoop the Nobel Prize, so you made the call. Yeah, and actually, it was a natural thing to really you know assume. And and what's interesting to me to point out is that we didn't make a blunder. You know, we didn't leave the lens cap on, or you know, we didn't like over overlook. We actually spent most of our angst and our neuroses focusing on you know what Feynman would say. You know that you have to assume you're the biggest fool of all. And not be, you know, subject to confirmation bias. But for us, we we did go out and we used maybe maybe too much um, too much confidence that we had in the lack of of attribution to dust. And it was sort of surprising because, as I recount in the book, you know, I, I originally thought, well, maybe you know, maybe a good title for the book would be a brief history of dust. <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> that wouldn't be as compelling a topic. Yeah, I, I, I think my, my publisher, you know, wouldn't be yeah. as happy with that. Um, but it's it's really true. You know, you look at the book and you got the book there and I, I've got it here. And, you know, what's always on the cover of a book? A book jacket. And I used to hate book jackets. I still hate book jackets, to be honest with you. You know, they fall off, they get dirty, they get torn. Uh, and uh, but I realized what's another name? You know, the dust jacket actually serves a useful purpose. Let's keep dust off. Like try putting a wormhole cover on the cover of your book. Like yeah. it's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they so just suck up dust. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. But but really, dust is ubiquitous. And we were not by any means the first astronomers to really kind of fall prey to the combination of dust and desire uh, to to really understand the universe amidst amid, uh, amidst you know, the dusty environment that we find ourselves located within and, you know, people say, well, how are you going to get out of the, get rid of it in the future with your next experiment? And I'm always joking. I should always show like a giant slide of a giant dust buster, you know, (laughs) uh, hanging out in the space and sucking up the dust, but you can't do that. And that's part of the challenge of being an astronomer is, you know, we can't do an experiment. We can't actually say, well, what would the signal look like if there was no dust in the universe versus there is dust in the universe? Or what would the temperature, what would life be like on this planet if the temperature of its star was this? You, we can't do experiments like our biology friends can do. Uh, and yet dust is really a mercurial in some ways because without it, we wouldn't be here. I mean, we have star stuff flowing through our veins, right? As Carl Sagan used to say, it's the iron in our blood came from the same supernova that made the damn dust that obscured our Nobel Prize. <laughs> So, so I mean, so half of the book is is you explaining in sort of gruesome detail and and a fairly you know humble approach at the at the conclusion talking about you know I I would have I think there were enough details about how it actually went down blow for blow and I don't know 
you know, um, sort of how much of that you had put in the book and it had gotten cut out or whatever, because it actually felt like you had gone into more detail. And maybe some of it was a little uh, uh, simplified. Um, but I wanted to see all the nitty gritty details. But, you know, and then you break that up with some recommendations for ways that you think maybe the Nobel Prize could be improved. And I think, you know, a lot of your recommendations have been made by many people before. Do you think that you got a little Nobel crazy? <laughs> oh, definitely before the Nobel Prize, uh, before this uh, effort and before, you know, kind of the episode that led up to this. As I said, I had this, you know, kind of ulterior motive in my mind to want to, you know, to kind of reach out just on a personal side, you know, that that I had been driven for a long time to want to make a name for myself as a scientist to in some ways compete with my father, who was a great mathematician, a great physicist, and who had achieved much more notoriety than I had as a, as a young postdoc. And so I want to do something big and un unshakable. And I realized that in the writing of the book that it had become sort of an, an idolatry, an idolatrous quest for me. And it really remains so for other people. Like I was reading another book last night. Uh, it's called The Telescope in the Ice by Mark Bowen. It's about the ice cube yep. experiment. Yep. And the guy on every other page, you know, then the word Nobel Prize comes up. And then I read books by Lawrence Krauss, you know, that, that came out just a couple months before my book. Nobel Prize on every as a way of certifying, as a way of a jury, you know, as declaring as sealed science as possible that the Nobel Prize is uh, is able to confer on science. And I And I realized how... The Nobel Prize distorted my vision of what science really should be. And and people say, oh, you're just jealous. You have, you know, sour grapes. I don't think anyone, you know, someone was asking me the other day, um, you know, in a different podcast. Uh, it, it was in the context of like LGBTQ. And he asked me, you know, like, you know, does it feel like, you know, you're coming out of the closet to say this? And, what, and I said, I don't know. But but for me, it was a feeling of liberation to not be beholden to this, you know, three inch golden, you know, literally golden mm -hmm. idol that you bow down to engraven with the image of the patron saint of Alfred Nobel on its, on its side. And I realized that it's basically deep within the heart of scientists as well to have this, this thing exist. So there were very many powerful people that told me not to write this book. It would be dangerous. You know, people love the Nobel prize. It's an industry and it's, you know, Sweden's most popular, most important holiday, essentially. They celebrate it on the date <laughs> of Alfred Day, Nobel's yeah. death. Yeah. They spent, it's a billion-dollar industry, so they don't want to compromise. And I actually engaged with the secretary general of one of the Nobel committees. And, uh, for the first time in public, they've really taken – so many people have made a lot of the recommendations that I've made. A couple of them are more controversial than others. But to my knowledge, no one from the Nobel committee has acknowledged that the Nobel Prize really is subject to these very vast biases and problems. And so my contention is I wrote this book. Not, I came not to you know slay the Nobel Prize but to reform it. So the title is a play on words in part. You know, Not only did I lose the Nobel Prize – it lost its meaning to me, and also some parts of it need mm -hmm. to be lost for the betterment of science. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great title. I uh, and and I think that uh, you know, and I, I like the recommendations. And I mean, there are other prizes that I think meet some of those requirements that do actually a better job, but they're just not as popular. No, they're there's, not as popular, right? I mean, mover I, you notice... advantage, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And nothing like this guarantees that the Nobel Prize will remain. I mean, the Pulitzer Prize used to be much more popular and prestigious than it is now. And uh, and it was more popular and prestigious than the Nobel Prize. I mean, the Nobel Prize was supposed to be given out annually to people that made inventions. And now it's become this huge spectacle. Uh, and, you know, as I said, a billion dollar industry. And so I think it has an obligation, just like Hollywood. You know, the Oscars used to be a tiny little affair. And now it's this global thing yeah. where you make and break careers. And I don't think most of my colleagues, I should say, Fraser, you know, I don't think 
most of my friends down the hall here, I don't think they're thinking about fantasizing about winning the Nobel Prize, in part because they may be doing some real science, which is mostly incremental. It's not this breakthrough once in a century. You know, at the, the day of the event, Lawrence Krauss said it was the most, it had advanced human knowledge more than any other discovery, you know, in all of human history. So it's not every day that you're a part of those kinds of experiments. So had we been confirmed, I think that would have held up. And, and whether or not I won is sort of immaterial. It's, it's like, I, I do feel like these things, these criticisms, are, are valid. And I should say, you know, only, only about three of the 13 chapters are about the Nobel Prize. Yeah. yeah no, it's a, yeah. it's a bunch of little cutout pieces. You can actually see, I don't know if yeah. you can see the, yeah. the, the <laughs> sections there. You can see sort of yeah, three in gray, little gray that, parts. That's um, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Choose your own adventure. Yeah, the yeah, theme. Just I do this here. <laughs> so yeah, so people can see them. Um, so I, I, so I would love to talk about the future because, you know, I did an episode on, on this uh, a couple of years back. And what I found really interesting was that, you know, is definitely the book is not closed on the search for primordial gravitational waves, Correct. that it is, it's a frequency issue and that there's a new collaboration that came together to continue the search. It's still a really fascinating question. So can you tell me, talk about the sort of the state of the search as it stands now? Yeah, it's really grown, you know, despite if you look at experiments like there was an experiment called Opera, which was um, which was a search for faster than light neutrinos, claimed to have discovered faster than light neutrinos, uh, shooting a neutrino beam between CERN and, and other detected at CERN uh, and, and launched a couple hundred kilometers away. And they claim these neutrinos were arriving you know, 10 nanoseconds too early caused a great amount of fanfare they were later shown to literally you know not leave the lens cap on but they didn't connect a gps timing fiber optic cable and uh and you look back and now they've they they corrected that you know people resigned and so but there's nobody like going back and let's build opera too you know <laughs> let's do the exact same thing again uh because the science that we're looking for i think is still out there to be picked and it's not at all clear that anyone will ever make the uh, detection that we really are all seeking, which is to discover what happened in the first trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. Uh, but now we can, we'll never make the same mistake again. You know, don't be fooled again. And in this case, we now know, thanks to Bicep, uh, what needs to be done in order to build an experiment which will be, you know, essentially uh, immune to the same sorts of effects that we that we had. We still have the potential for confirmation bias, but hopefully by building in safeguards like the ones I propose in the book, uh, you'll be able to really make the discovery uh, using bigger instruments with more detectors, certainly colder instruments and in different locations, and to require that multiple instruments see the same thing and agree in it with agreement. And that means comp competing teams, uh, the South Pole team, which I'm no longer affiliated with on a day-to-day -day level i mean we're still you know collegial to each other uh but you know I, I i joke the other title could be in the book you know since i'm not working with bicep i was going to call it a farewell to arms but th that title was taken so i, I guess <laughs> yeah. this guy hemingway has that book um but bicep, <laughs> I, I get it yeah i don't know what kind of a you know career this guy hemingway is going to have so maybe yeah. it's still good but um but they're uh, upgrading their experiment they have a new they went currently to an experiment called BICEP-3, very creatively. And the next experiment, which is an array of telescopes like BICEP, is called BICEP Array. And we, on my collaboration that I'm currently the leader of, called the Simons Observatory, is also building a series of refracting telescopes cooled down to a whisker above absolute zero. And these telescopes will be located in the high desert of northern Chile called the Atacama 
at about 5,200 meters, 17,500 feet or so above sea level. It's just a complete otherworldly location. You know, think about the Cydonian plains of Mars or something like that. This is just like uh, nothing like else on Earth. And we're building a, a huge uh, set of, uh, of infrastructure telescopes, a six meter diameter telescope, you know, th- 20, 30 times bigger than bicep. And we're also building, um, we're also building these three refracting telescopes, very much cut from the same, you know, cloth and the same DNA as bicep two. And so the lasting enduring lesson of bicep two is these are incredibly hard measurements to do. The reason that people are so interested in them is that they could reveal the earliest uh, signals that ever existed in our universe. They could reveal the presence of alternate universes. Multiverse uh, is concomitant with most models of inflation posit that there are additional universes to the universe that we inhabit. Uh, or in some sense, even more excitingly to other people uh, are, are the implications if inflation is not discovered. So what if we, we build these ultra experiments that are at the limit, the so-called cosmic variance limit, the limit beyond which we can't really improve upon if such a thing is theoretically possible even, but let's assume that it is. And let's say we don't discover gravitational waves. Uh, would that mean that inflation didn't take place? Or what if we see something different? What if we see evidence for what's called a cyclic cosmology, a bouncing cosmology? And there are many eminent theorists from uh, Sir Roger Penrose, who's a friend of mine, to Paul Steinhardt, who's another friend of mine, and Neil Turok. Uh, and they they uh, have a prediction that the universe uh, in an inflationary scenario is very unnatural and it's very Baroque and it has sorts of problems that they claim are every bit as fatal as the problems that the inflation model was designed to correct. Uh, namely the you know the flatness and or age and so forth of the universe and of course they're very much in the minority as you say you know first mover advantage conveys a lot of statistical power and drives the career choices for many young cosmologists but one of the things that we could see excitingly would be evidence for a uh, a cyclic universe which goes back you know millennia uh, except we'd see it in a modern form and in some sense People consider that more natural, that the universe didn't come from nothing, and that, in fact, it came from something. And these two ideas are the, you know, the inflation model and the cyclic model are the intellectual heirs of the steady state model and the Big Bang model. And who's to say right now which one is correct, but the, the debate will continue to rage on, and we hope to provide evidence that will give us data to kind of tip the needle in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, nature knows the answer. It's just our job to listen to the point that we we hear what the answer is. So, I I mean, what would be a signal that you would see in your instrument that would tell you that maybe there's something to a cyclic universe? Yeah, so the cyclic universe will present a very different type of uh, of signal. It would not feature – B modes or gravitational wave, uh, these twisting patterns of gravita- that are indicative of gravitational waves, they would not pro- it would not produce them in the same way that inflation produces them. And so in some sense, you're looking for an absence of something rather than the presence of something. So we can falsify the bouncing models, which is what makes them interesting. In other words, science in some definitions, I don't agree in all definitions, Karl Popper's presentation of it was that you could um, science, a true scientific theory, unlike say astrological theory, uh, is disprovable and that you can use data to prove it wrong. And inflation is very flexible in that there are many, you know, there's no one model of inflation. There is the way there is one model of, say, uh, nucleosynthesis. So we know how nucleons are, are synthesized together. And it's not necessarily like an interpretation issue. It's how do we actually make quantitative predictions from the theoretical inputs. 
You want to have minimum inputs, get maximum outputs. Inflation has maximum outputs in some sense. There's an infinite number of models. And so it's very flexible. It can, it can accommodate a lot. The bouncing models can't, and, and they're sort of less flexible. So their virtue is that if you were to see gravitational waves, you could disprove that the, ground, the bouncing model took place, the cyclic models took place. That, in some sense, is a virtue because it comports with the you know 500-year-old scientific method in, in a little bit more natural sense. Yeah, I, I, but I, I mean, isn't there some hints of evidence of inflation? There's a lot of evidence for in inflation, but again, inflation is not, it's not the same as saying, you know, there's a lot, isn't there some evidence for nucleosynthesis? I mean, we're at the, you know, tenths of percent precision on many parameters to describe the abundances of elements that trace their origin to the fiery Big Bang first three minutes. But in inflation, there are, you know, inflation does not have to have taken place for us to see the universe as we see it today. In other words, it's consistent with it, but it also presents many other sorts of, of issues that people are challenge, find challenging. The most prominent one amongst those being the multiverse, and that it's essentially inextricably intertwined with inflation. That if you have inflation, then you have a multiverse. And if you have a multiverse, you know, I, I've, you're going to change the name of your show. And, and <laughs> that's yeah. the least of it. You know, I'm going to have your show. Multiverse you're, today. Yeah. And you're going to be here with a book about dust. And, yeah, so everything can happen as possible to happen. And so the, you know, kind of the initial conditions problem is pushed back a little bit. But, um, but you also have this, this, you know, complete burgeoning of potentialities for other universes to exist. And in those cases, then you start delving into anthropic arguments as to you know why we're here to be in a universe that's fit for us to be here to observe the universe uh and you don't end up getting in you know, a predictive uh power in such an ensemble of universes it's sort of anything anything goes in a multiverse but you're i mean you're more of an instrument instrumentalist i don't know what the yeah. uh what the term is you know i you... play the the iphone yes I play yeah yeah, yeah but you you build machines correct yes. that that investigate certain portions of the universe you almost hack the universe yeah, and and that was the, something that i really loved about this and yeah. so it's you know like are there i mean we see what's happening with say the the large hadron collider that we have sort of it did its one job perfectly yeah. well and now it hasn't been able to turn up any evidence of any of the supersymmetric particles, any of the dark matter particles, any of these Correct. heavier particles that are out there. And now people are starting to have this conversation of, well, should we just build something that is bigger, more brute right. force? Mm -hmm. And it, it does feel like there's a real opportunity now to build some of these machines that, and I call a telescope a machine in this, in this situation to, sure. to yeah. explore some of these, these areas that are, that are maybe haven't been investigated enough to just see what turns up, to see what kinds of interesting discoveries. And so, you know, with the Simons Observatory, you know, do you see other kinds of just interesting, that surprising outcomes that maybe yeah, you hadn't been planning absolutely. for? Absolutely. So um, the patron of the Simons Observatory is Jim Simons, a world-famous mathematician, you know, 20th on the Forbes list of billionaires. 
and um, and he's of the you know he has a personal predilection for the these bouncing cyclic models. Uh, in some sense, they they appeal to be more natural to him. But he's not a cosmologist. So I was talking to him about it not too long ago, and and he's saying, well, you know, it seems like it would have an implication even for the existence of God. And now, now here's a guy; he's a secular guy and mathematician, first-rate scientist, has developed many many things in his career, and um, and he's talking about the implications for something so you know a metaphysical uh, a, a conjecture. And I just think it's so interesting because, you know, I love my colleagues here at UCSD and, you know, some of them down the hall will be, you know, trapping atoms and doing all sorts of other cool stuff. But they, those sorts of, of, uh, you know, experiments are very important, but they are also, you know, they have a different level of kind of connection to the, the personal side of science. So I always feel like, you know, cosmology has, has this great story to tell. And unfortunately, there aren't as many great storytellers. And most of the storytellers who are great are, are friends of mine, many of whom put the, you know, their, their names on the books and endorse my book, you know, Brian Greene and, and Sir Roger Penrose and Martin Rees. And they are theoreticians. They're not in the trenches building the equipment, deploying it and shooting them all around the world and, and taking data for decades in some cases. And I felt like that was something that was a lacuna in the science, popular science book field where people describe, well, what is it like to build a telescope? Why do you do these things? And are you just kind of like a plumber, an electrician, or do you have, you know, when you're just a technician, just, I don't mean in a pejorative sense, but like, are you just a technician, you know, kind of contributing in that sense? Or do you have a deep visceral connection as these brilliant theorists do? And I want to show that, yeah, we do. We're not just, you know, kind of uh, just putting on our hats and, and just, and connecting pipes together. And, and as I said, nothing's wrong with that. But, <laughs> but the bottom line is, um, you know, for us to do what we do, we are the ones that are going to put the checks on the theories. And one of my friends said, he's a theorist. And he said, you know, like 99% of what theorists do is wrong. Yeah. And, and we're, we're comfortable being wrong. And, you know, but when you have a big announcement, uh, that's why, you know, this thing that's coming in two days from the Event Horizon Telescope is so exciting because, you know, it has to be blessed by multiple levels of people and their paper has to have been vetted and accepted. Uh, it would be very surprised if it wasn't accepted and ready to be published in a major journal. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot on the line. Now, we didn't do that for Bicep and that was probably to our peril and we're yeah. going to correct that in the future. Yeah. But um, but yes, it's, it's sort of the greatest things that you can do, uh, in my opinion, is that to be a good experimentalist, you have to be a good theorist. I mean, you don't have to create new theories. That's not my job. But you have to understand the theory at a visceral level so that you can talk to a theorist to understand what you're doing. And I find we do that. I teach my students that. I've got you know nine PhD students. It's very important for me that they know the theory. And not as much goes in the opposite direction, unfortunately. But it, it feels to me like experiment. Like I absolutely have a preference for experimentalists like like it feel like for me that's where the rubber hits the road mm -hmm. that you know like obviously the work from the theorists is is absolutely critical and i think the the you know some of the greatest examples of this are things like you know people figuring out that they should be seeing the cosmic microwave background radiation and then that's right um, and then that leading to the actual discovery, the accidental mm -hmm. discovery um, by Penzias and Wilson. But and and of course, what happened with the Higgs. But I also love the work, say, in discovering dark matter by Perlmutter and, and, and team. Or dark energy. Dark energy, sorry, with, with Perlmutter and, and, and team. And just this thing with, that they were just trying to make precise calculations about something, precise observations about the, mm -hmm. about the distance to supernova and discovered something that was surprising to them. Yep. And, and that, and that I think that, 
you know, and I think there's a pretty, you know, again, I'm not a physicist, I'm just a journalist, but <laughs> my job is to report on every gruesome detail of all the stuff that happens. And I definitely see, you know, things like, like what happens with string theory and some of these mm -hmm. other theories that people sort of get lost in the weeds for a long time. And yet it feels to me like a lot of the, I'm always really excited when the new experiments are figured out and oh, developed yeah. and, and, and implemented. And, and I, and then I also feel sad when an experiment gobbles up too much budget and doesn't, <laughs> isn't able to, you know, that, that smaller, more interesting, more out there techniques are proposed. And that's why, you know, reading sort of the development of the, and the simplicity of the bicep and the bicep two experiment just really felt like perfect, you know, like yeah. there's one job, it's going to figure this out really well and, and go from there. Um, uh, Neil, Neil, you was asking if you could hook us up with Neil Turok at some point to interview. So <laughs> absolutely, we'll, uh, we'll be, I'll, I'll he's out of a job now. He was the director of Perimeter. Yeah, and now, now he's not out of a job, but he's no longer the director. So yeah. yes, yeah, the friend, then just shoot me an email. I'll be happy. Yeah, I'll, I'll reach out to uh, to interview some of these people. Um, and Paul Steinhardt, you should interview too. He has a new book about discovering quasi crystals, a feat which he won't admit it, but I will say, you know, basically won a Nobel Prize. Actually, it was. Uh, uh, something like 27 years, 37 years ago today, uh, the Nobel Prize winning discovery for quasi crystals was made by Shankman and, and all. And uh, but Paul was really instrumental in predicting it. And and some say he lost out on a Nobel Prize opportunity for himself. So what are some, you know, if you had more money to spend on some instruments, some perfect machines, what are some observational instruments that you would love to to see built? Well, I mean, I'm of course biased towards what I do. Yes, and, of course. And I think you're, yeah. the, the project you're working at, the Simon, the, the Simons Observatory, is the greatest thing, and you, there's nothing That's you'd right. rather be. And working there isn't on. a success. There is a successor potentially to the Simons Observatory, which would be you know sort of a billion dollar class experiment. You know, we're only a hundred million dollar project, but uh, poor pitiful us. But uh, but the the successor sort of a billion dollar class experiment called the the Department of Energy CMB Stage Four experiment, which is being led by many of my friends and colleagues in the field. I'm not particularly involved in it yet, uh, but this instrument would be you know many many times more. It would be essentially multiple copies of the Simons Observatory, but in addition to being in Chile, it would also be at the South Pole, Antarctica. Now that experiment would potentially reach. There is a a golden you know goose uh, that that stops laying eggs eventually so there is a limit even if inflation didn't take place there's a limit uh, beyond which you cannot probe anymore using gravitational waves in this b mode pattern that i described and that limit it turns out it's many orders of magnitude lower than what we're going to be able to do with either the simons observatory or this billion dollar experiment but uh, my dream would be to do that because if you right. could build that experiment and then you would rule out that inflation took place down to the minimum possible level beyond which the bedrock prevents you from drilling deeper into the signal. So beyond that level, if you didn't see something, uh, uh, then you would have to say, well, either inflation didn't happen and therefore an alternative model, potentially a cyclic universal model must be true. And that would have dramatic ramifications for uh, for science, for theology. I mean, what if you know the Bible's wrong? I mean, you know, it's 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 uh, it's not exactly a science book. Well, right? I mean, a so, cyclic universe doesn't that just push the like what started the whole cycle in the first place? Doesn't it just push the question back in uh, one level? 
Well, it's sort of interesting because the cyclic universe in some sense is, is more palatable because at least it posits that there's an unending cycle of universes, unlike a steady, a true steady state universe, which is, you know, the same forever, which we now know is impossible. So it does, it does push it back, but at least it significantly avoids the, you know, the, the question of, of, you know, where, how does something come from nothing, right? That the, you know, even the laws of physics did not exist prior to which. Uh, it also provides an answer, you know, my favorite question, you know, that I'd like to answer, <clears throat> you know, is what happened 15 minutes before the Big Bang, you know, yeah. or the Tuesday before yeah. the Big Bang. The last 15 minutes of the previous universe. It, yeah, it could right. be, right? And but that's that still, I mean, come on, it still pushes the question back. Like, you still have to say what started the cycle going. Well, you could say the cycle is truly infinite, right? You could say it has been going on forever. And it's just this phoenix repeating over and over again from the ashes of the previous universe. But there, there's one other aspect of the of this ultra future. You know, the, if I have if I have Kane money, yeah, uh, if yeah. I have your yeah, money, the Kane, and then yeah, after yeah, exactly, funds, yeah, yeah, the Kane, uh, the Kane fund, the Kane Observatory. Uh, what it would do is, if it did detect these waves of gravity, um, and it still and it didn't detect any sort of signal whatsoever then it would mean that general relativity is wrong also in a in a precise sense i just wrote a paper with a with some colleagues in israel that describes you know kind of the ultimate experiment uh, the ultimate limit is provided by what are called the secondary fluctuations, these scalar perturbations in the early universe's curvature, energy density, et cetera. They must produce a manifestation of gravitational waves, meaning that if general relativity is correct, meaning if you didn't see them, then that would impute that imply that the universe did not obey general relativity at its earliest moments. Now that's heresy. Right. I mean, <laughs> basically saying that's heresy. And the other thing that we could do, and we're just starting to do this now with the CMB and other instruments, is that we're looking for what's called a violation of Lorentz invariance. <clears throat> so we think the universe is sort of mirror symmetric. It's charge symmetric. It's time symmetric. If you put all three of those together, but we know the universe doesn't respect what's called charge and parity. So if you invert the charge of it, of all nuclei, and say, and you invert their their helicity or their direction of spin. Um, you can get different physics. In other words, if you drop a baseball in a mirror, you see the same physics. If you run time backwards and you, the, the baseball will go up uh, because the laws of physics are symmetric with respect to change in time. But if you change charge and time, um, or charge and parity rather, in mirror symmetry, you get these strange effects. And by looking at the most distant light in the universe, namely the CMB, we can test if this uh if this symmetry is truly a fundamental symmetry of nature or we just think it is because we've only tested in the laboratory or the solar system so we have not yet tested beyond the solar system and now we're using the entire universe as 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 this uh as our laboratory and with the Kane observatory we hope to do that right of course i look forward <laughs> to uh to funding this uh these these observations may you be so wealthy sir yeah exactly um but i think like i i think you know you talk about a bit about like having a chip on your shoulder um i think anybody who <clears throat> wants to do things has a chip on your shoulder and the question is like do, you know is it a good chip or is it a bad chip you know yeah. do you use that the energy for for good or, or evil and i think that if you use that <laughs> You know, I, I am absolutely driven to uh, to compete, but I'm also more driven to help other people succeed. And I think that as long as that's the the thing that's more compelling to me, then I think so. So I think as you go down this pathway, you know, my only advice is I can, you know, you just be careful with your with your biases as you as you discovered 
the, the first yeah time absolutely right? i mean you know really confronting that and you know and and looking into you know other sources of ancient wisdom and, and you look at things and you see that this is just not unique you know scientists are people and i think that's a huge misconception that we aren't driven by these things we're driven by them and look on a daily basis am i speculating about whether or not the universe was cyclic or whether or not there's a god that kicked off the universe you know no i'm thinking about why doesn't that damn resistor get to 17,000 feet in time to meet the compressor you know i'm thinking about systems and and i'm really more in a kind of project managerial mode more than ever but um and in that sense you know you do have to be a small business person an entrepreneur you have to interact with people and so yeah don't be a jerk don't be evil but what we're trying to do is so is so you know fundamentally astounding and intriguing as i said I don't think we need more stories to tell in cosmology. We have them, but we need storytellers. And and to me, that that comes with humility, as as I say in the book. I, I think it was a humbling experience, but it wasn't a humiliating experience. I, I don't regret it. And I think it clarified through new vision that I have now, as you say, this 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 notion of what a science what is what should science really be about? And you know, it used to be just to be completely honest with you, you know, when you, someone make a big discovery, you're like, oh man, does that like is the is the Nobel Prize a pie? You know, is there going to be one less piece of pie left for me? And now I'm totally honest. You know, people can you know I'm, they're free to leave a one star review if they like. It would be my first, so I know who you are. But but the uh, <laughs> it <laughs> but, happened but, today. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's right from Vancouver. No, uh, but uh, looking back and and thinking about what happened, I I really don't wish that. It's almost like you don't wish the Nobel Prize on anybody. Yeah, because it's such a burden. I mean, I had a Nobel laureate in this office talking with me, and and he read the book and he read the interview, uh, uh, you know, reviews of the book. And, you know, he's got his own quips with the Nobel Prize, too. And and a lot of it, one of my late colleagues here, Roger Tsien, who won it from a, an invention of microscopy and chemistry, he said, like, the last peaceful day he ever had was the day before he won the Nobel Prize. Yeah. So I think, you know, be careful what you wish for. And now I've learned that early enough in my life, my career, now I can, you know, really feel and, and mean it. And, and I think people say, oh, you're a hypocrite. You don't mean it. And I say, well, look, you can test my sincerity. Just, you know, get them to award me the Nobel Prize. If I don't reject it, I'm a freaking hypocrite. Yeah. I I think you'll accept it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I'd have I'll to see if it's convenient. Yeah, it's exactly. Really I would, I no would physicist has ever – no, there have been rejections in almost every field, you know, medicine even, yep. and, and then peace, certainly economics, you know, maybe. But uh, but no one's ever rejected the physics prize. Hawking it, rejected uh, lordship. Did he? From, did he really? Okay. Queen. Yeah, he rejected being called Sir Stephen Hawking, oh, which is why he okay. never was. Interesting. So, um, of course, as a Canadian, you know that's still that's still that's an option right. for me. Um, <laughs> well, uh, Brian, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, of course, uh, I'll hold up the book again. People can yes. can read sort of the uh, see the blow by blow of how you went through uh, what you went through, both the discovery and how it all uh, unfolded in the end. Um, and and sort of and if people want to follow along on what you're working on now, where should they go? Uh, well, I'm pretty active on Twitter, uh, mostly at Dr. Dr. Brian Keating. Um, I don't really do Instagram or whatever, but I do have a website and I have a mailing list. And uh, what I want to do for your first ten uh, respondents, listeners, whatever that that sign up for my mailing list. Uh, U.S. addresses only, I'm afraid. Actually, I could probably do it for Canadians too. I will send a piece of space dust, which I think I sent to you. A chunk of space dust. You might you might have misplaced yeah. it or it got sucked up in your vacuum cleaner. Uh, maybe. Well, there was a there was like a a bookmark that came with the. Well, there's a bookmark, the... but there's also a little rock, right? There's yep. a meteorite that came with it. Yeah. So I will send a tiny meteorite to your first uh, ten listeners that 
uh, sign up for my mailing list and use hashtag universe today. So okay. I will mail it to you guys. Oh, US or Canada only. So what is your, what's your website? I'll put it up on the screen so people can see it's, it. It's uh, briankeating.com. Okay. Uh, and show people how to do this. Yep. Use hashtag yep, universe today and send send me a note and sign up. Yeah. And so if you go to briankeating.com, uh, the very first thing that happens is it pops open uh, his mailing list, which you can join. Yes. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Brian, uh, absolute pleasure to, to chat with you uh, and good luck with the work that you're doing with the, the Simon's Telescope. I really look forward to that next uh, that next announcement the one that has the primordial gravitational waves uh, for real, <laughs> All right, for you'll real. Be, you'll be the second to know. <laughs> Perfect. All right. <laughs> thanks a lot. And thanks, everyone, thanks, for Fraser. watching. Thanks for the moderators. Uh, apologize for uh, me hogging all of the bandwidth tonight, but uh, sometimes <laughs> that's just how it. That's just how we roll. Is I, I had a million questions I want to talk to Brian about. So don't yes. worry. Next week, uh, next week, I think we have Chad, our uh, producer. I think is uh, is the plan next week. And then after that is going to be Jeff Notkin, uh, the new president of the National Space Society. So uh, that'll be a fun conversation. All right. So thanks, Brian. Thanks everyone for watching. Thanks, and we'll Frazier. see you all uh, next week. Take care.